Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is Easter actually about? Why is Easter so important? Growing up, there were breakfasts and Easter baskets and the Easter suits and all the exciting things that happened. Best of all was the chocolate Easter bunny that rarely made it to Monday. But is that what Easter is really about? The reality is of all the holidays we celebrate, this one is the most important. A follower of Buddha writes that a religious leader of that religious leader, when Buddha died, it was with that other passing away in which nothing whatever remains. Muhammad, he died in Medina on June 8th, 632, at the age of 61. But they come to mourn his death. Many still visit his tomb, mourning the fact that he has passed, not to celebrate that he's alive. We, however, gather today to celebrate the reality that our God lives. Sadly... Many who claim the title of Christian have surrendered the reality of Christ's resurrection. They state that it didn't really happen. We understand from science that once things die, they're dead. There's no mostly dead, there's just all dead. Yet as we argue against them, they can't understand our protest. They ask, what's the big deal? You can still believe in Jesus. You can still be a Christian and not really believe that he rose from the dead. Just spiritually he rose. But is that true? Is Easter actually that important? And to that question, we answer with a resounding yes. It is vitally important. It is vital to our faith. In fact, without Easter, we have no faith. Easter is so important. And so for this reason, we turn to our text today, 1 Corinthians 15. We'll look at verses 1 through 22. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all. As to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it is I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God, 
that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. As we look through this text, we'll not be doing a normal, thorough examination of the text like we typically do, where we really slowly walk through it. This morning, I want to trace the resurrection through this text to help us understand why Easter is without question the most important holiday of the year. Because on this holiday, we celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul begins first with the proof of Christ's, of Christ's resurrection. The first half of this text presents for us the proof that Christ rose. This, this holiday is about much more than, than Easter bunnies. Eggs, new outfits, wonderful breakfasts, probably a fantastic family dinner. This holiday matters much more because Christ really did rise from the dead. In fact, Paul presents for us two proofs of Christ's resurrection. The first proof that he gives us is the confirmation of Scripture. The confirmation of God's Word. This was not some new belief the disciples invented. Jesus died and now they've got to come up with some way to hang on to what little power they had. They had to carry on a little bit somehow. Rather, the death and resurrection of Jesus had been prophesied over and over long before in the pages of Scripture. He says in verse 3, I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says, first off, this is of most importance. This is the priority over everything you'll ever hear. The most important thing you'll ever hear in your life are contained in these two verses. This is the most important message we can give to anyone. More important than any scientific data on anything. More important than any book you've read. It's by far the most important news you'll ever receive. This is the news that everyone needs to hear. What is this news? He says first that Christ died according to the scriptures. This was a message that Christ's followers, that all those around him missed. That Jesus had to die. We spent a lot of time on this Friday night as we traced through that, that fateful day when Christ died for our sins. And this message is most clearly seen in Isaiah 53. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The Old Testament clearly lays out the reality that the Messiah had to die. But why did Jesus, the Messiah, have to die? For this we have to go all the way back to the beginning. In Genesis 1, God created all things perfect. In fact, in Genesis 1 and 2, the phrase that is repeated over and over and over is that it was good. And he concludes it all by God looking on all his creation and stating, it was very good. However, before long, Genesis 3 tells us that Adam and Eve sinned against God, seeking to usurp him and take his place and become like God. And so they disobeyed, eating of the forbidden fruit. They began to worship themselves rather than God. It was at its core an act of unbelief. And Paul tells us in Romans 5, as we saw a few months ago, that through one sin, all mankind was plunged into sin. That's why we do wrong. That's why every bad thing that happens, happens. That's why many of you this morning, when you got up, had to figure out what didn't hurt, not what did. Because sin pervades all of us. It's why we mistreat each other. It's why there's pain and hardship, disease and death. And even worse, because of our sin, we've been placed under the wrath of God and all its eternal consequences. God holds you as his enemy because of your sin. God is perfect. And one single imperfection is all it takes to... Make it unperfect. And so God cannot allow any imperfection, not a single one, into his presence or into the perfect heaven. But God loves you intensely. While you stand as his enemy because of his death or because of your sin, Christ came. And created a way for you to enjoy life through his death. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 tells us that, that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. God himself took on human form, lived a perfect sinless life and took all the punishment of sin on himself. 1 Peter 2.24 tells us he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus died so that you might live. It was the ultimate act of God's love for you. Romans chapter 4 tells us that he died for our justification. 
He died so that you could stand before Him completely justified with the perfect right to enter into heaven. And Jesus really died. This wasn't some sort of He was unconscious and they just didn't know it. He was dead. Paul includes here that He was buried He was placed in a grave where he was entombed for three days. This was not some sort of fraud. Jesus' death was not fake news. Jesus was dead. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. However, Paul continues on. He says he rose the third day according to the scriptures. That's why we're here today. Because Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus is alive. He lives today. And scripture told us this would happen. Perhaps Paul had in mind the rest of the text in Isaiah 53. It says in verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put on him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Perhaps he was thinking of Hosea 6.2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Or perhaps he was thinking of Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my body to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's plan from eternity past was to have Jesus rise victoriously from the grave and claim victory over sin and death. This has been promised by him. Every Easter, a well-known atheist makes the comment, this is your annual reminder. People don't come back from the dead. To which Christians respond, and this is our annual reminder. That's kind of the points. He conquered death. However, lest anyone claim this was a hoax, Paul presents witness to this fact. In fact, Christ's resurrection was confirmed by multiple witnesses. Verse 5. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive when Paul wrote this, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. When an event is uh, trying to be established as happening in in the legal courts, when, when lawyers try to demonstrate, here's what exactly happened. They seek eyewitnesses. If they can find one, that's considered wonderful. We have an eyewitness to what happened. They can tell us what they saw. If they can find two, then that's an open and shut case. Two people saw the same thing. However, Paul presents not one, not two, but roughly 600 
witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. It says he appeared. The Greek word there literally means he was seen. This was not a vision. This was not some dream. He was seen with human eyes. Paul states that he appeared first to Peter. We read in Luke 24 that Peter and the disciples were told by the women that Jesus had risen from the dead. And they didn't believe. So they ran to the tomb. Peter and John ran to the tomb. And Jesus appeared to them. We see that Jesus' appearance did not stop there. We're told also that he appeared to the twelve. We see that at the end of Luke 24. As the disciples are hiding in the upper room, fearing for their life, not sure what to do. All of a sudden, there he is. Right in their midst. Paul tells us that he appeared to more than five people, 500 people at one time. We don't have this event recorded anywhere in the Gospels or in Acts. But Paul mentions that most of those people are still alive when he wrote the letter. People could go ask them, is this true what Paul wrote? And they would confirm, yes, we saw him. He's not dead. We're told that Jesus appeared to James. Probably James, the son of Zebedee. We also are told that he appeared to all the apostles. This most likely refers to the 70 disciples that followed Jesus. It's possible that they were all there at his ascension in Acts 1. Finally, Jesus had appeared to Paul himself. We see that in Acts 9 as Paul is on the road to Damascus. And Jesus, the one he's persecuting, appears to him and shows himself to be alive. We can be confident that Jesus did indeed rise from the grave. This is no hoax. This is no bedtime fantasy. No dream. Scripture foretold it. Almost 600 people witnessed it. People who maintained that witness all the way to death. Most of them being imprisoned and executed for it. Jesus is alive. Now, however, we must ask, why is that so important? See, his resurrection is not just some aspect of the Christian faith. Not just something that some believe and others don't, and it's okay. The resurrection is not like baptism. As Baptists, we believe that Scripture teaches you dunk people. You immerse them. But if you go to a Presbyterian church, they believe that you sprinkle them. Who's right? Well, we'll get to heaven to find out we're right, but that's okay. <laughs> but this is one of those things that is central to the Christian faith. As we'll see, if one denies Christ's resurrection, that person is not a child of God. How can we say this? Well, to answer this question, we must look at the purpose of Christ's resurrection. Having established the validity of the resurrection, Paul moves into the second part of our test to the purpose. He presents for us two important purposes of Christ's resurrection. The first purpose is that the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. Our faith stands and falls on the resurrection. Sometimes I've heard Christians say, listen, if I'm wrong, I still live a happy, satisfied, full life. If you're wrong, you're just unhappy. If I'm right, I go to heaven. 
Right? But if I'm wrong, it's okay. I've still lived a full life. But Paul argues with that here. He says this, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. But if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul states that if there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ could not be raised. And if Christ is still dead, then our faith is in vain. The word in vain is the idea of empty, shallow, without content, absolutely void. And Paul gives us three reasons why our faith would be void, worthless, if we don't believe Christ rose from the dead. These three reasons are why believing in the resurrection or why believing in the resurrection is not optional to our faith. First, if we don't believe in the resurrection, then Christ would still be dead. John Calvin said, "For the resurrection is not from nature, and comes from no other quarter than from Christ alone. In fact, we could rightly state that if Jesus is still dead, as Jesus is God, then God is dead. And there's no hope for life. We would simply be left adrift. Without hope. No purpose. No point. Just get what you can out of this life because when it's all done. It's all done. Second, we see if we don't believe in the resurrection, then our preaching would be meaningless. Paul states our preaching would be vain. Not just some mixture of falsehood and we got a few things wrong, but overall it's a good message of positivity and, and help, motivation. Paul says you're wasting your time. You'd be better off sitting in your camper or on the lake today than being here. Again, John Calvin says this, No, therefore, he teaches that if the resurrection of Christ is denied, God has made guilty of falsehood in the witness that has been brought forward and hired by him. Third, if we do not believe in the resurrection, then our faith would be worthless, of no value or point. If Christ is not alive, then all of our family members and friends who have preceded us in death are dead. Yesterday, as we, as we mourned and, uh, the loss of Harold and celebrated his life, if Christ did not rise, that was a terrible experience. But, if Christ is alive, then it means we too will rise. We too will rise from the grave. And live with him for all eternity. This is why Paul ends chapter 15 the way that he does. Where he says death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death where is your victory? Oh death 
Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he rose from the dead. This isn't all there is. So all these trials you face. All the problems you suffer. All the illness. All the problems in this world. The corruption of our culture. The corruption of our government. The corruption of the world. Would be all there is. But because Jesus rose. We are reminded that one day he's coming back. He's going to split the sky open. He's going to establish his kingdom. And we will be with him forever. Because he lives. The reality is the resurrection is the good news. The resurrection is the foundation of our faith. Without it, our faith crumbles and becomes pointless. Without it, we're worse off than we had never believed at all. In the middle of all this, though, Paul gives us insight into why the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. Paul tells us why the resurrection is more than an optional add-on to Christianity. The resurrection is the basis of our salvation. Paul began the text with the statement, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And now at the end of the text, Paul ends with the statement in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Your eternal salvation is tied directly to the resurrection of Christ. Again, Romans 4.25 says he was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. If Christ had simply died and not rose from the grave, death would not have been conquered and our sins would not have been paid. We would not be justified before God. Without the resurrection, there's no salvation. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. One man said, just as the heart pumps life-giving blood to every part of the body, so the truth of the resurrection gives life to every other area of the gospel truth. The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would matter. And so if you show me someone who denies the resurrection of Christ, I'll show you someone who is not a Christian. Someone who is unregenerate and that does not have a relationship with God. In fact, in Romans 10, as Paul explains how we enter into a relationship with God, he says in verse 9, but if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You, you make him the Lord of your life. And 
Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You must believe that Jesus is alive. Then you'll be saved. He says in Romans 5, 17, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection, we can have a relationship with God. Because of the resurrection, we can have our sins forgiven. Because of the resurrection, death is not death. Because of the resurrection yesterday with Harold, we said, not goodbye. We said, I'll see you later. All because Jesus rose. So you see, Easter, Easter is more important than simply another holiday. In fact, I would argue, this is the most important day of the year. Christians, we really love Christmas and we celebrate Christmas a lot. But this is more important. Because this is our justification. This is our salvation. There is, however, one more important matter we need to discuss. I mentioned that Christ had to die and rise again. So that our sin could be rightly and justly forgiven by a perfect, holy, and righteous God. But we would be negligent if we failed to mention that this forgiveness is not applied automatically to everyone. This forgiveness is only applied to those who truly believe. Imagine Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth... That Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. See, this belief is more than simply mentally acknowledging, sure, I believe God exists. I'm sure Jesus lived. Maybe what said is true. No. James 2.19 tells us you believe there is one God. Good for you. You do well. So do the demons. And they tremble. This belief, true belief, involves a complete surrender of the heart and life to the thing believed. It involves confession. Not some magical phrase, say the words after me, Jesus, Jesus, save me, save me, amen, amen, happy, clappy, we're all good. No, it's an acknowledgement that you are utterly helpless in your sin before God. That you are not basically good. You are completely evil. Because of sin. It involves repentance. Turning away from our for former sinful life. And surrendering our life to God. It's not just adding Jesus to our life. But giving our lives wholly and completely to Jesus. That's what it means to call him your Lord. But here's the payoff. If we do this, then we'll be saved. We'll be freed forever from the punishment of sin. We'll begin the lifelong process of overcoming sin and living right, godly lives. And one day we'll stand before God free forever from the presence, the power, and the penalty of sin where death will be no more. And every bad thing that is a result of sin will be gone. When we give God our life, 
we'll be given a relationship with him. I urge you to begin this relationship today. Acknowledge your sin. Call on Jesus as your Lord. Call on him to save you. Surrender your life to him and enjoy his presence. Easter is the greatest day in the world. So let this be the day that you begin your relationship with God. For those who have already come to Christ and are children of God by means of faith in Him, let me remind, let's be reminded on Easter of the cost of our salvation. We don't just come Sunday after Sunday celebrating the re- resurrection of Christ because it's the thing we do. We come Sunday after Sunday celebrating the resurrection of Christ because it is the greatest news in the world. Because it is transformative. It is the only thing that can change this world. And if it is untrue, then we are the most to be pitied. But we're not the most to be pitied. Because it is true. Jesus did rise from the grave. And because the resurrection is true, eternity is true. And if eternity is true, then let us not lose sight of it. Let's not become so focused on this world that we lose sight of the world to come. If you invest your funds in this world, that's where they'll stay. But if you invest your funds in the world to come, they last for eternity. If you invest your life in this world, then that's where it stays. But if you invest your life in the world to come, then it lasts for eternity. Don't get caught up in this world. It's not become... So focused on this world that we fail to walk worthy of our calling as children of God. Let's live only and completely for our risen Lord and Savior. Because He rose, we will rise too. Let me give you three applications today. Three so ones. One. If you are sitting here today and you have not yet placed your faith and trust in Christ. You've not given Him your life. I plead with you to do it today. Because you have no guarantee of tomorrow. And eternity is coming. Jesus rose. Heaven is a fact. But it's not guaranteed for you. Second. Glory in the promise of your future resurrection. See a lot of Christians unfortunately that live defeated. We hear of wars. We hear rumors of wars. We hear of the end coming. And Christians fear. We forget that Jesus said, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be afraid. Because eternity is coming. We've read the end. Jesus wins. So glory in your resurrection. And then three, live in light of that future resurrection. Live for eternity. If you live for this life, you'll lose the next. But if you live for the next life, you'll get this one thrown in as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity that you have given us today to celebrate the glorious truth of your resurrection. That we don't have to fear death. That we don't have to fear the things of this life. That we can, like Paul, say to live is for Christ and to die is gain because to be absent from the body is to be present with you. Lord, we long for that day. And so we say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord, I I cannot help but believe that there are some in this room 
who have not yet given you their life. Lord, I ask that you not allow them to sleep, to rest, that your Holy Spirit would convict them, draw them to yourself, that they might experience joy for eternity. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.